Today's episode is brought to you by Third Love. Third Love is an exciting lingerie brand that uses real women's measurements to create better-fitting bras. Try Third Love's best-selling 24-7 t-shirt bra for free for 30 days. Start the Try Before You Buy program now at thirdlove.com sexlives. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells. With me today, as always, is New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor. Hey, Maureen. Hey. we got a great show for you today. First, we want to remind you about the Sex Lives voicemail box. We've been ending our shows with your responses to questions we ask about topics from previous weeks. Our recent episode about the female orgasm continues to provide incredible fodder for some really great submissions. I was giving someone who's relatively new to the casual sex game head in the shower. And as he was coming, he blurted out, what does cum taste like? So that's coming up later on. But first, on today's show, we're joined by Maura Weigel, who's just published a book called Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Maura, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hi. Maureen, I know you've been super excited to have Maura on to talk about her fascinating history of dating. Do you want to, before we ask her about her book, tell us what got you interested in the subject? I think literally the first moment before I even like read the description of the book, like I saw just the title and I was like, what? Someone invented dating? Yeah, it's so interesting because when everything people write and talk about, about the way that technology has changed dating recently, almost takes for granted a very stable prehistory that dating used to be one way forever. And this book is like, you know, super interesting and how much it complicates that picture. But before we get into that history, Maura, do you want to tell us a little bit about what brought you to the subject and why you took this on as a project? I think that like many aspects of American nostalgia, this vision of dating that people seem to have in mind when they talk about quote unquote traditional dating seems to come to us from the 1950s. Most cultures have had some way of introducing young people to one another and get it forming couples, you know, to have babies and reproduce the society that's controlled either by the family or by sort of like social institutions like the church or, you know, a factory owner might try to influence it or a rabbi or whomever. But when I talk about the invention of dating, I really mean this very unique courtship system that arises in the around the beginning of the 20th century that has to do with young people going out on their own and trying to find partners on their own. And I think that, so that's one part of it, but I think the really sort of idealized sort of Norman Rockwell, innocent teenagers at the soda fountain date that people seem to have in mind when they say, oh no, look at this Tinder, no one's dating, that that's really an artifact of the 1950s and maybe 1960s. There's something so gross that the word traditional always is like, fixed at this point in time that it was just right before civil rights, essentially. Totally. In a exactly. And when you all of a sudden exactly. realize that the way we, when you're like panicked about dating, what you're also referring to is that very sort of regressive version of tradition is so depressing. Totally. And no, also and why everybody needs always, to be yeah. more pro Tinder because otherwise you're <laughs> doing that. <laughs> no, I think that's exactly right. And whenever I sort of read or talk to someone who has this very nostalgic picture of that, I say, yeah, you know, that was great if you were a straight middle-class white dude. If you were either the girl who, you know, 
if you got, if you went parking too far or something, you got pregnant, your life was over. Or if you were in love with someone out of your race, if you were not straight, uh, there were all sorts of ways in which that era was horrible. How does this compare to other cultures? I mean, this is like a really American fantasy pegged to American history in particular. Like how, how does it compare to European or Asian ideas about traditional coupling? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because I've actually spent a fair bit of time living in Europe. I speak a couple of European languages and I've also lived in China and uh, speak some Chinese. And I've written about Chinese dating elsewhere. Uh, when I started working on the book, I thought I was going to have a few comparative chapters on other places. And then as I worked on it, that started to feel kind of unmanageable for all sorts of reasons. And it's a I big do task. Think it's a huge task. And I think also there really is something very distinctively American about dating culture and this idea that you, you know, the sort of the way it's inflected by consumer culture on the one hand, like you're shopping around for a mate and also the way in which throughout its history, you know, people are constantly being told that they have to work on themselves. This idea that it's like, if you work a little harder and shop a little longer, you'll get the life of your dreams. is like very American. When I ask people that often from people that are from other countries, either living there or, you know, coming back, whatever, People so often tell me that they're like dating is an American thing that I remember yeah. I interviewed that um, a Parisian sex columnist once and she's and I was like, can you have sex on the first date? And she goes, there is no first date. There is just first sex. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, God, that's true. The idea that like you would like and she's like and her theory was that she's like actually people go on dates in France now because of Tinder because there's all of a sudden well, a model for saying yeah. one person blindly finds another person and as a dyad you test it out on you know as opposed to meeting somebody at a dinner party and then you fuck them if you like them and you don't if you you know well the fascinating thing about china and the reason i'm kind of obsessed with chinese dating culture is to me it really sort of i mean if my hypothesis is that this invention of dating has to do in many ways with the arrival of a certain kind of consumer capitalism mm -hmm. i feel like dating the dating culture in china just proves just proves this for me really and mm -hmm. what's fascinating there is you know since china joined the wto i always like to say in 2001 when china joined the wto there wasn't really any expression for dating there wasn't this whole ideal of romantic love for your spouse that we have in the West. And now there are, last I checked, something like 26 uh, competitive reality dating shows on Chinese state TV. Oh my God. There are like literally dozens of versions of The Bachelor and that kind of thing. on. And there's this booming urban culture of amusements. There's this whole idea of like single women in the city, sort of like sex in the city style, single women and all the anxieties and pleasures that come with that. And so I feel like you've really seen this like development of this phase of capitalism in China. It's been like really accelerated and on a really big scale. And you've seen it in just like the past 10 years. Can you tell us a little bit about how the American ideal of dating got started? Like when, when you say, you know, the subtitle of your book includes the phrase or is the phrase the invention of dating? Like, tell us about. Who invention. invented it? Yeah. Was it a man? <laughs> no, it was women. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, well, so the, I use this phrase, the invention of dating. And as a practice, you know, I, I looked, of course, it's always hard. You can, it's hard to pinpoint when exactly a social practice is invented. But I jokingly say, and I think this is legitimate, that it, uh, it was invented in 1896, which is the first <laughs> time that we see someone using the word the way that we now use it on the print record. And really... What context the, was that? 
Uh, it was a column by a man named George Aide who wrote a kind of like, it was a column called Stories of the Street and Town in the Chicago Tribune. And he wrote about sort of like how the other half lived. And he he writes about a young man named Archie. He talks about his girlfriend like making a date with another man and how he's very upset. But it's basically dating starts to be a thing in the 1890s when you have a huge number of women entering cities and entering the paid workforce, which you've never had before mm-hmm. in the United States or really anywhere, I don't think, um, not in the same way. And that's for a variety of reasons. There's a terrible economic crisis in 1893 that drives a lot of young women from the country to the city or gets a lot of families whose daughters hadn't previously worked to send them to work. Uh, you also have waves of immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe to a lot of American cities during that decade. And so it really grows out of this lively sort of working class, young working woman culture. Uh, and when you think about it, you know, you think about what a big deal it is in like middle March when one new dude comes back from Italy and like comes and visits the mm-hmm. town. There had never been situations before women went to work in large numbers and went to live in cities where they would have, you know, the freedom and the obligation to be outside their homes in the streets, going to work at a store, going to work at a restaurant, wherever it was, where they would just meet tons of people, um, or where they'd have the liberty to go out with someone who wasn't in their family and, you know, have fun together. So it really, the invention of dating is a product of, it really was invented by working class women in America around the turning turn of the last century. It's interesting to me to think of it as like, you know, it's, there's a, a sort of women's liberation part of the story, but there's also this, like, as you were saying, this urbanization part of the story, which, which is just like walking down the street, you just see so many people. Like there's so many attractive people you encounter. It's like, if you live on a farm, you know, they're <laughs> like, you see like a totally. couple people a week. It was like just on my subway car this morning. I was like, there are like 10 really hot people on this single subway car. Like that's not an experience that any of my ancestors would have had before like major urbanization. I always felt that way coming from grad school in New Haven to New York to do research <laughs> in the New York Public Library. I was like, I felt awesome in the library at grad school. But look at all these people in Grand Central. <laughs> I know. I always have this theory that it's harder to settle down in New York because you just literally see so many people and you're so constantly aware of the idea that, like, there's more out there. There's another opportunity somewhere. It's funny. In German, there's this expression, which means, like, the torture of choice. And that's what I always think of. <laughs> I'll never learn how to say this word, but I'm glad to know that there's a German term for the tortures that I I think there's like a there's an, an English equivalent this psychologist Barry Schwartz wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice which is sort of this yeah, idea. that's what go. I was trying to think yeah. of I feel like it's like the thing where they do tests or they like if they offer you 10 cereals you're just like totally paralyzed and can't pick any cereal but if there are only three you like happily eat a bowl of whatever one of them is um, it's like that that kind of consumer choice problem applied to dating. It's how I feel in front of toothpaste styles, actually. <laughs> but I find it really exciting to try out a different toothpaste every single time. Yeah, well, that's good for, you know, probably you're, you're doing your great. Dating I know, right? I get so excited because <laughs> I get a different mascara every time I run out of mascara, you know? <laughs> you're the ideal 21st century dater then. <laughs> I'm a really good consumer. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit, you write about how sort of technology and innovations over the course of the decades have then sort of, or I guess centuries, have continued to sort of refine and alter the way courtship rituals work. Can you tell us a little bit about that? New technologies are constantly changing how courtship happens. And to speak back to Dave's original point about, about you know, wanting to sort of 
be a bit more skeptical about people who say, you know, the iPhone or like Tinder is ruining civilization. I'd say, you know, technology, there have been older technologies like the telephone, like mm-hmm. the automobile, which adults are so stressed about cars in the 20s and 30s as well they should have been because kids are getting up to all kinds of trouble in cars. Why were cars in particular so troubling? Oh my gosh, because you could get in a car with your boyfriend or girlfriend and go wherever you wanted and you had this private space where you could It's like suddenly you have like a mobile private space in the public sphere in a way. Which is kind of what a cell phone is too in in certain ways. Is it possible that like the um, archetypal design of the American car with like huge back seat and like, you know, bench seating in the front – the, like this, this is like was a way to provide a sexual space for people who needed to use it to fuck. It's so interesting. I mean, like we'd have to call up Alfred P. Sloan and like the General Motors staff from the grave to answer that question, I guess. Because I feel uh, like the times that I've had sex in contemporary cars, they're like they feel so awkward, and you're like, can yeah. I just have one of those old boats from the '50s to do this? Yeah, because they're like ergonomically designed to just be like a vessel for like the transportation of humans now. Whereas it seems like the older cars were like a little mobile lounge or like a little mobile totally. living room in some way. As a child of New York City who grew up in the city, I never had this pleasure of furtively having sex in a car. <laughs> so, Did so you make I out in the know. back of taxis? Yeah, oh, definitely. I still make out in the back of taxis. taxis <laughs> have that bench seat in the back. Makes things better. Yeah. yeah, so you always end up just like sliding across and making out. Poor cab drivers perpetually witnessing drunk makeouts. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's lucky. kind of fun. Maybe it's kind of titillating. It's kind of, But it's interesting that you say that because I've never actually thought about that, about the car. But the car is so sexualized. As like a symbol of people's identity. I mean, if you think about, I always think that Greece, you know, the movie Greece is like the 1970s poking fun at the 50s. But like the way the car is, the cars are in that movie. I mean, just the phrase like greased lightning is like such a... (laughs) (laughs) It's like Astroglide lube. It's like the Astroglide Avant La Lettre or whatever. (laughs) This week's episode is sponsored by Third Love, an innovative bra company. And this week, I had a friend who has extraordinary difficulty finding comfortable lifting bras. Try out the Third Love bra because she wears an e-cup. Hard to find. And she tells me via text, quote, It was super comfortable, and I liked how thin the straps were, but still lifted my giant boobs. Um, She says it was really lifting, comfortable, fit well, and Third Love stands behind that 24-7 t-shirt bra so much that they're willing to let you try the bra for free for 30 days. Just go to thirdlove.com slash sexlives. All you have to do is pay for shipping. You can take the tabs off, wear it, sweating it, washing it. Just do whatever you want to do with it. And if you love it, you keep it and they'll charge your card. If you don't love it, you send it back within those 30 days for free and your card will not be charged. If you don't know your size, a friendly online fit specialist will help you find your perfect fit. And Third Love even offers half cup sizes, a true innovation. So go to thirdlove.com slash sexlives to get started. So do you want to tell us a little bit about some other technologies, sort of post-car technologies? Yeah, well, one of this is a car-related technology, but one of my very favorite discoveries, uh, sort of funny things, where I was doing research into swinging and sort of like stag party culture in the 60s and 70s, suburban couples who would go to versions of key parties or blue light parties or, you know, swing with other couples. And several of them talked about 
the interstate highway system as a technology. They were like, you know, I, President Eisenhower started building the highways in 56 and how it had never been possible to find enough other couples open to the lifestyle uh, before the interstate highway network made it so much easier to connect across state lines. And I thought that was very funny that this Republican post-war president did not know what he was doing when he built those highways. But again, it's not a it's not a kind of thing that we're used to thinking about, I think, as a technology. But of course, an interstate highway is a connective technology. It's funny. I wouldn't have thought that swinging predated the 60s. As mm, a... Very much so. The way uh, that community sort of historicizes its own culture, as they say, it started in Air Force bases during World War II, where there was sort of an agreement that Again, this is also wrapped in myth. It's like hard to know how true any of this is, but the the myths have it that it's sort of on Air Force bases in the U.S. where pilots would sort of have agreements with one another to like take care of each other's wives, and if one were to die, that the other one would take care of the family. Up the and so, I mean, it's like yeah. Those- old stories about like the man dies, so the wife must go to like his brother or something. That there's right some really sort of strange perverse like it's just a ridiculous justification for like wanting to fuck your friend's <laughs> wife i mean i'm taking care I'm of doing her. the honorable thing or whatever it's like, i pick up the flag you behind know. you when when he falls and the flag Indeed. is a woman <laughs> with her own brain those... and feelings it's such a weird like objectification totally don't you think I'm so fascinated, like looking forward and how, because I think with the Air Force bases, it's also all about a communal living arrangement, right? right? It's funny, like this takes us sort of far afield, but the whole idea of marriage being the center of the family and the center of your life, you know, of people getting married and forming families that live by themselves as nuclear families instead of in extended family units. That's a pretty new idea. That only starts around 1800 in Europe and has everything to do with like changing housing patterns and work patterns. So anyway, I look ahead in the cities I've lived in, San Francisco and New York, to like the totally unaffordable housing future. And I'm like, it's just going to become kind of like perverse open relationship communes, which sounds kind of fun, actually. Like, I don't mean perverse <laughs> in a bad way ever. But uh, but I actually am really interested. Like, I think that the swinging and the army bases in a funny way makes sense so that you have this like other kind of weird family unit, an erotic unit that opens up. And I really am curious how that, I mean, I think it's no accident that we're seeing a lot more talk about like polyamory and open relationships now. And I'm very curious how that will play out you know, over my lifetime with the sort of permanent roommates phenomenon with sort of like communal living spaces that you're seeing already in, in lots of really expensive cities. But anyway, that's just my weird futurology. <laughs> I have thought about this a lot too, actually. And I'm sort of divided because on one hand, it incentivizes you to like having really expensive rent, incentivizes right. you to couple with someone. And I mean, totally. the bed is, you know, if you can share a bed and a bedroom with somebody, your rent is so much cheaper and beds just literally only come big enough for two people. So like it's harder. <laughs> um, but then the flip side of that is so many people I know that are like into their mid, late 30s even that have roommates still and they're just so accustomed to having roommates that it's just sort of second nature to have a million people around. And I think that's sort of the phenomenon you're pointing to, that sort of like communalness. Yeah, and I think it's totally possible that we'll see both. Like, I don't think one trend precludes the other, but I've been really interested. I, I don't know if this is your sense. I feel like I've seen a lot more talk about 
open or flexible monogamish kinds of relationships uh, in the past couple of years. You know, OkCupid just added that open relationship feature. And I wonder whether sort of the housing markets and different kinds of living situations and the ways that many couples have to travel for work or like live apart, things like that will reshape uh, those norms in the decades to come. But yeah, it's interesting to just to think back to the Air Force Base example. Like w- one mm-hmm. of the factors in that is that probably all of those people were married by the age of twenty-two. And, totally. Yeah. Um, it's a you know so there's like a it's a sort of a different I don't know it's a different world now when people are waiting much later to get settled in. I know. Totally. Couple up that early that you're like, oh my gosh. You have to cheat. Don't you want to try something else out at some point? (laughs) No, but I asked. So when I was miserably dating, I asked, and I hope my parents will never listen to the Panoply podcast. I don't think they will. But I asked my (laughs) lovely Irish Catholic mother, who's only ever been with one person, my father, about this. And they got married when she was 20, I think. And I was like, but what if you guys didn't have sexual chemistry? Like, oh, what? what And she was like, oh, I never would have known. And I was like. (laughs) You're a genius. Like, how did we mess this up? Such honesty. I suppose I your definition of sex is that person in so many ways. Yeah. That blew, I mean, it's extremely obvious. It blew my mind. When my mother pointed that out, I was like, it's true. I guess like, yeah, we just figured missing. it out together. And yet there's such a like, oh, missed opportunities too. I know. No, not that. Oh, sure. God. I hope they never hear this. I'm sure now your parents have a wonderful sex life. Um, no, I hope so. Yeah. Oh, my God. Where have I taken us? What are we talking about? Well, I love that interstate highway metaphor because I think that's such a good (laughs) point of just being able to get to a group of people that aren't immediately next to you or that you don't literally run into and make eye contact with every day. And that's what online dating does. That's what, you know, phone technology really does, too. Yeah. And it can be a total godsend to so many people. I think it's just, of course, the way these companies are structured, they're structured to get more and more traffic on the app. You know, just the same way a bar wants people to come and come and come. A dating app wants people to use it and use it and use it, which means that, to come you know, the proto... <laughs> oh, my bad. <laughs> to come and come to the bar, to visit the bar many times. <laughs> but, uh, no, they don't care if you come back to They'd rather have you keep returning to buy drinks. Um, and the dating apps are the same. And so it's like these protocols that are built into them, you know, the way that, okay, Cupid every other day is like, answer some more questions and you'll get your right match. Those are all about getting us to do work for OkCupid and generating revenue for OkCupid. And uh, they're not really about human connectivity. And so I think maybe it's really obvious, but just staying mindful about how much work we do put into these apps and what it's for, that's like important. But they in themselves, you know, even though they're governed by this capitalist imperative to expand and to get more and more of our time, they are also really valuable tools for connecting with other humans. So you ended up actually, so you had this question, you were single and you're like, interesting, how does dating work? What is the history? (laughs) But then you actually, at what point when you were working on this book, did you find someone? Are you with that same person now? Yes. I actually, it's funny because I got to know the person who I'm actually now married to while I was just starting to work on this project and we were sort of getting serious right as I was getting started. So it was this funny thing where I was like joining all these apps for research right at this point (laughs) where I actually wasn't really looking for someone to date. Um, So yeah, that's what happened. I would like to believe that thinking more critically, I mean, about some of these gender roles and the pressures on people and the amount of anxiety that they'd produce for me anyway, helped me like calm down and actually connect with this person I really love who I'm still with. 
Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. Sometimes people are like, how did you research it? You're not even dating. And I'm like, I researched this shit for a decade. Like I was in, I was in the war, you know, the, the war trenches. troughs or whatever. Trenches. That's what they say. Not <laughs> war troughs. I'm like, okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so yeah, but it is a funny thing that I actually kind of was falling in love with this person while I was researching and writing this book. So <laughs> Our guest has been Maura Weigel, whose new book, Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, is out now. Maura, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. <laughs> On to voicemail. As I mentioned at the top of the show, our episode about the female orgasm has turned out to be the gift that keeps on giving. Before we play this week's message, here's some context. A couple weeks ago on an episode where Maureen was joined by Amy Rose Spiegel, a caller who actually you guys assumed was being serious. In listening to it, it seemed to me like he was joking. But I thought he was an earnest elderly man. <laughs> Somebody left us a voicemail informing us that the female orgasm is a myth, um, despite claiming to have listened to our episode about the female orgasm. Maureen and Amy proceeded to gently explore, not so gently, explain to this caller that the female orgasm is indeed quite real. And Maureen then jokingly wondered if the male orgasm is the one that's actually make-believe. So that's the backdrop for this week's voicemail. I want to answer Maureen's facetious question about whether or not the male orgasm is a myth. I think what we understand to be male orgasm is what's mythical, in part because the reality is much funnier and can be quite revealing. Case in point, I was giving someone who's relatively new to the casual sex game head in the shower, and as he was coming, he blurted out, what does come taste like? It's like... <laughs> I Like, I could understand the appeal of asking that question at some other moment. But, like, right then, it seems so weird. If it's at that moment, that's when you're like, want to try? I mean. <laughs> or we got some right here. Yeah. Wait, this is a query that I occasionally ask men that I'm like, have you ever tasted your own jizz? Like, aren't you curious? I have to say that I haven't, but. Are you curious? No? No, but I think that's, like, I can imagine, like, I can think of a lot of guys I know who would be and probably have. It's just. More, like, temperamentally for me. I'm not the kind of person who's going to want to do that. I mean, I can see that because, like, there are plenty of things in your body that you don't need to taste. But as one that, like, routinely, depending on who you are and what you do, will routinely end up in someone else's mouth and yeah. other people will routinely taste you, it. You think we should at least, like, monitor it to make sure it's – Yeah, um, maybe you just want to know. Yeah, what you're inflicting on people. Yeah, because they're definitely – It's happy. like a chef at the pass, like, before the food goes out to the dining hall. Exactly. Don't you want to know? Um, I think we do sort of minimize to some degree because we're like, well, it's easy to do because like, the male genitalia is external. But there's variation in like how the orgasm feels, I imagine, or so I've heard. Yeah, totally. I also think it's like something about just the, our gender expectations for communication that like men are basically, at least traditionally, have been uncomfortable talking about like the inner workings of their sexual desires and and like actual functions and women are like for whatever reason like we expect them to be a little more reflective on like their experiences i once talked to a guy that told me that he's like all right i've had like an or i have orgasm three times oh but i come all the time i come every single time but i've had like three orgasms and then i perpetually was trying to figure out if that was a thing whether it's like he had some equivalent of like one level and then his like second level in the same way that you might be like well, I have orgasm, but have I squirt orgasmed or something? Based on my research, I think what he was just describing was a very intense orgasm and that each of them was an orgasm. But I don't know. Men, do you feel like you come without orgasming often or ever? 
Is or, there a schism between those two things? And uh, g- generally, do you feel like our cultural idea of what a male orgasm is is really too simplistic? Probably. I mean, also given that I feel like the moment or whatever is unlocked from orgasms involving the prostate must be a whole different category. Yeah. Like there actually <laughs> probably are far more categories than we know or imagine. I bet Sting knows. He can tell us. <laughs> I thought it turned out that he was totally faking, like he was totally bullshitting about all that. Yeah, I assume so. <laughs> That's just like the world's biggest like sexual exaggerator. Like, oh, I had sex for 24 hours because I touched my penis once an hour for 24 hours. But don't, right? you, don't you think like it all – think about all the women who had sex with him and must have come away disappointed. <laughs> who are those women? Women, if you have had sex with Sting, please call in and tell us how it went. <laughs> So that's it for Sex Lives. You can call us on any of those subjects at 646-494-3590. Sex Lives is produced this week by Andrea Salenzi. Thank you, Andrea, for filling in. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you next week, and thanks for listening. Hold up. 